and horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the Jew unto Israel, he shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn, and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Last week we looked at Hosea 14, verses 1 to 3. And we were applying it to do different types of people. We were applying it first of all to those who were Christians but who were backslidden. And we were speaking of returning to the Lord, returning to Him and praying to Him. We were also applying it to those who as yet haven't trusted in the Lord as Saviour. And we were speaking to them also in the same manner of the way home to God, turning round, confessing in prayer, and coming back home to Him. Remember what we said, that when they would return, turning was the most, one of the most important words in the whole of the Old Testament. It occurs so often there. We were thinking that it occurred something like a thousand and fifty times, at least in its different roots. And we were thinking of turning. Why should they turn? They should turn because of what their sin has done to them. Thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. It wasn't fear of judgment. It was a mess that sin did in their lives. And we were saying also they should turn right back up to the Lord. No half measures. That the word used was used of coming right up to God. And we were also speaking of the prayer that they would have when they would come. They would ask for something, they would promise something, and they would confess something. They were to ask that their sins would be forgiven. They were to ask that God would receive them graciously, to receive them as good people. And then they were to promise a life of praise and a life of devotion to match that praise. They would render the calves of their lips. And then they were to confess that they have a God who can save them. They were to confess their trust in a saving God, in a powerful God, and in the God of Scripture itself, the God in whom the fatherless findeth mercy. Now remember there's God himself giving the words to you to come to him with. He's laying down the pattern for you there. He's placing the words in your mouth should you wish to use them. 
But having prayed that prayer, what guarantee have you that you will be heard? What guarantee have you that God wants to hear that prayer? Well, for one thing, he gave you the prayer. He is the one who invited you to come, and God never mocks anyone. The one whom God invites to come, he expects you to come, and he will receive you if you do come. So the very fact that he has invited you means that he wants you. And the other thing is written down here itself. He gives us the word that he will say to you if you say those words to him. When you come to him with that prayer, asking, promising and confessing, he will say to you, certainly, I will heal your backsliding. I will love you freely, for my nine anger is turned away from you. I shall be as a Jew unto you, and so on, if you are to apply it personally. You see that psalm, we sang Psalm 34 at the beginning. It speaks of a poor man crying to God in his distress. Have you cried to God in your distress? It also speaks of a man who found that God answered him because he found that God was not only a hearer but an answerer of prayer. And this is the God that I invite you to come to, one who really and truly will answer your prayer. If you're backslidden, doesn't matter how far you've fallen or how low you've sunk or what mess sin has made of your life, it's not erratic, irreradicable at all. It's a stain that can be cleaned away because God himself still invites you to come even though you've fallen by your iniquity. And if you haven't trusted in him yet at all, he still wants you to come to him. No matter how many chances you've missed in the past, no matter how often you might feel that you are under conviction of sin, no matter how often you might have felt that the word spoke to you personally and you cried for a while but then left it, you might feel that God doesn't want you now because you rejected him then. But God does still want you. That's the word of God here. He still asks you to return to him. And if you do, this is what he will say to you. First of all, he says, I will heal their backsliding. You know, backsliding, it, the, the root of the word is the same as turning away. I will heal their turning away. That's the word that's used in Hebrew for backsliding, turning away. But you see, you never turn away from God without it having effects. If you turn away from God, even as a Christian, it will begin to leave a mar on your life. It will begin to leave a stain on your life. And if you haven't even trusted in the Lord at all yet, you are very much in a backslidden way, in this sense that you are turned away from God. And the effects of that are felt in your life, and you know it. You know 
that because you're facing the wrong way, you know that it's made a mess of your life. That's what backsliding is. For the Christian, it's that turning away. For the unbeliever, it's that constant remaining turned away from Christ. You see, backsliding can become a way of life. That's very true for the Christian. Backsliding becomes a way of life. That's what had happened to Israel. They had begun in a little way, but then backsliding got a hold of them. They began by thinking, oh, we'll just have a wee alliance with Assyria. It won't lead to any great sins. But it did. It led to them trusting in the Assyrian gods. You see, when you begin to backslide, you begin to slip down the slippery slope. And you know what happens. It becomes a way of life that becomes so difficult to break. It's a way of life for you, perhaps. You began to stop reading the Word of God. You began to stop praying to Him. Perhaps because you were too tired at night. Perhaps because you felt you had received enough in the church that your private devotions could stay away for a night or so. But then it became a habit and your prayerlessness and your scripturelessness becomes a way of life. You're backslidden. It's become a way of life. And you know that's also true for the unbeliever. Perhaps when you were growing up, you had all great plans for yourself. You perhaps wanted to become a Christian and you thought, yes, I'll be able to do that in my time. When I'm good and ready, I'll be able to turn and to trust. But then you found that you began to enjoy sin and the pleasures of sin for a season. And then you began to find that it became a way of life. And you became in such a mess because of your sin that you couldn't find a way of escape because it's become your life. It's not just sin. It's your life. Your whole way of direction and life has corrupted you. And you're all in this web just like the little fly that's caught and you can't get out. It's become a way of life. That's what backsliding can do to the Christian and that's where it leaves the unbeliever. You see, sin is a disease. Sin loves to get a foothold and I can guarantee you from personal experience that when sin gets a foothold, it begins to rot your life. It begins to lust in your life. So at one sin leads to another sin. Remember David in Psalm 51, thinking back to his adultery with Bathsheba. The look of lust led to adultery. That led to lies and to drunkenness. That led to the encouragement to do all sorts of evil things. And then eventually ended up in murder and didn't even stop there. The murder itself led to the kind of cold heart which enabled him to live with murder and it didn't bother him. Sin, when it begins to work, 
is a disease. Christians, we must not meddle with sin. I know that I feel like a hypocrite saying those words, but I must say them because it's God's word, and sin is a disease. Let it bite, and it will keep on biting. Feed it a little, allow it a little re- little freedom, and it will begin to work in you. One lust feeds another lust, feeds another lust, and it goes lower and lower, and you sink into this backslidden way of life. You see, God is under no delusions. God has no illusion about what state you're in tonight. God knows full well what has happened to you. God knows full well what has happened to you because of sin in your life. Remember that. God knows. But he says still, I will heal their backsliding. And the word heal means simply, I will make it healthy. I will make you healthy again. I will bring healing. The disease of sin, the rot that it began, the mess that it's left. You might think it's a stain that cannot be moved. But listen, he says, I can heal. I will heal their backsliding. It's his idea of making healthy. It's his idea of rebuilding. It's his idea of restoring. Perhaps as a Christian friend you feel very low because of the state of your life. And Satan might say to you, you've gone too far now. You might as well go wholly back to the world. You might as well give it all up. But God says, no, it's not too late. I will heal your backslidden way of life. I can make you healthy. I can make you spiritually healthy again. I can rebuild your walk with God. I can restore you. So that you will walk in the path of righteousness again. You see, God himself says that he gives them the prayer. That is the first part of healing the backsliding. When he gives them the prayer itself and he says to them, I still want you. And God can heal the depravity in your life. He can deal with the stain of your sin. You might doubt it. But I can assure you that God can make you faithful again. God can make you faithful and obedient to him. No matter how low you've sunk, you come to him and he can rebuild your life. 
And perhaps you as an unbeliever feel that you're too far gone. God can make you a Christian. God can make you a faithful, obedient Christian. He promises that if you turn to him, he will in no wise cast you out. But then he also says, secondly, I will love them freely. Now notice, it's not, I will heal. And once I have healed, then I will love them. These two clauses are parallel. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. He doesn't say, look, you're in an awful mess and I don't love you. You sought out your sin. You sought out your backslidden way of life. And then I will love you. He doesn't say that at all. He never says that anywhere. He says, I will love you freely. Now you know what love is. Love is feeling an attachment to someone. Feeling an affection for someone. Love is really when you're aware that you're like someone. And that's what God says. I am going to feel an affection for you. I am going to feel a love for you. And I am going to act because I love you. Imagine that God tonight in heaven is saying that of you believers. I love you. I love you. Imagine that he has our names written down there in the book of life. And each one of us is known to him personally. Because love is always a personal thing. Love is never something that's in a group. God loves us personally in Christ. Individually. He has come near and he says, I love. Yes, you feel low because of your sin. But God says, I love you. You turn to me. But it's this word, I will love them freely. It's the same word that is used for the free will offering. Now remember we discussed before when we were speaking about Hannah's vow that that was a free will offering. This is also a free will offering. Remember what a free will offering was. Take for example the tithe. How much money should you give to God's work? I believe scripture says you must give a tenth of what you earn. That is written down. That is a principle in the Old Testament. That is written down there. That's obligation. That's duty. But the Lord says you can give over and above that. You can go over that and give me more if you want. Because it will be a free will offering. I won't command you to do it. I won't force you. I won't make it a duty. 
But you, if you love me, you can give me it out of your own devotion and love for me. You can give me more. Well, that's the word that God uses here for loving us. It's as if he looked at us and there was nothing in us that should be loved. There was nothing in us at all that would claim his love. Because we were so broken, so backslidden, so sin-ridden and disease-ridden that God had known no claim for loving us. There was no obligation upon him to love us. So he says, but I will do it freely. I will do more than is my duty. I will do more than is just called of me. I will love you because I want to. I will love you simply because I want to. It almost comes down to, I will love you because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. That's the freeness of this love. You see, you never earned it. You never worked for it. He does it freely and he loves doing it freely. He loves to love. Now, if you aren't a believer, don't try to earn God's love in any way. Because you will never earn it. What God says is this. You come to me. You trust in me. And I will love you freely. Not because of your good works. Or of your good life. Or because you're a good church attender. I will love you freely. Because I want to. Is it the truth perhaps that you want to come near to him? As if to say, now look God. You know that I'm doing quite well in my life. You know that I'm not really as bad as others. Surely Lord, you won't turn me away. This you trying to earn the love of God. You'll never manage that. Perhaps as an unbelie as a believer, you're backslidden. You come with your broken heart and you say, Lord, I have sinned against you. You can't love me anymore. That's you making a fatal mistake. That's you saying there that it was because of your good works that God loved you. God loves you freely and there will be nothing you'll find harder to live with than that God loves you freely. There will be nothing that a Christian will find harder to understand. There will be nothing that will bring him to shame over his sin more than this great truth that God loves you freely despite what you are. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Why? How? How can God love 
how can God heal? For mine anger is turned away from him. For mine anger is turned away from him. You see, don't get this wrong. God was angry with you. God was angry. God will always be angry with a sinner who is bearing his own sin. He will be angry with you. There's no mistake about that. I wouldn't like anybody in this church to think of themselves as in some way escaped from that conclusion. God is angry with you if you are an unrepentant sinner. The Bible says that you were children of wrath before you trusted in Jesus. Up to that very moment when you trusted in him, you were a child of wrath. God was vehemently angry with you. But now you're not a child of wrath. Now God's anger is not against you. But remember this. It's not that God's anger disappeared. It's not in any way that God's anger subsided. And that God said, it's okay, I won't be angry with you anymore. That's not what happened at all. It's that God's anger, as it says here, was turned away. It doesn't say God's anger ceased. It's God's anger was turned away. If you turn to me, he says, you come to me with your sin, face me holy with your sin, and confess it. And what will I do, he says, I will turn my anger away. Now the Satan says the opposite. He says, you're a sinner, man. God doesn't want you. If you go near God as a holy God with your sins, he will cast you out. He doesn't want you. But God says the opposite. He says, come to me with your sins. Yes, I'm angry with you. But come to me with your sins. And if you do, what will happen is that my anger will turn away from you. Now that's not logical. But that's the way God works. Because his anger, when you trust in him, turns away from you and on to Jesus Christ. That's why we read Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted by God. He was the one who was beaten. He was the one who was whipped and scourged. He was the one who was chastised. He was the one who was crushed. Because God was angry with him. Instead of being angry with you. God turned his anger away from you 
and unto Jesus. You see, when you trust in Jesus, that's what happens. When you become a Christian, you come and you trust in God, and God turns his anger away, and he faces it on Jesus. That's why the cross took place. That's why hell took place on Calvary. Because God was angry with Jesus so that he wouldn't have to be angry with you who have turned to him. Have you turned to him? If not, God is still angry with you and you will go to hell. No one must be under any delusion about that. But if you trust in God and you come and you pray to him and you ask him, you Lord, please take away my iniquity, then he will direct his anger onto Jesus and he will say, I will love you freely because I have punished your sins when I punished Jesus on the cross. You see, God will love me. God will heal me because he is not angry with me. That's the way the Christian thinks. God will love me. God will heal me. Because God is not angry with me. Because I have turned to him. He has turned his anger away from me onto Jesus. That's what God promises he will do for you who come and turn to him. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from them. But it doesn't stop there. He says, I will be as the Jew unto Israel. I will be as the Jew. You know, Jew, it's not something we really appreciate in this side of the world. But over there in Israel, Jew is really important. Over there, you have vast changes of temperature. During the day, it can be very hot. During the night, it's very cold because the sun sinks so suddenly. During the day, very hot. During the night, very cold. And when you get that kind of drop in temperature quickly, you will always get a lot of dew on the ground. And over there in Israel, the dew is more important than the rain during the day. Because the dew at night doesn't evaporate with the hot sun. It works in the plants and in the crops. It sinks down into them and it makes them fruitful. That's why the Jew is so important. And God says, look, I will be as the Jew unto you. I will make you fruitful. I will make you into a beautiful Christian. I will make you into a lovely man or woman or boy or girl who can walk with God. I will be the Jew. 
I will give you blessing. I will give you nourishment. And I will make sure that you are fruitful. God doesn't just promise to heal you. God doesn't just promise to love you. God promises to give you this life more abundant. He promises to give you this rich, meaningful, fruitful life. You see, if you're not a Christian, you don't have this beautiful life. You don't have the healing. You don't have God's love. But nor do you have this abundant, rich life. Jesus himself said to his disciples, I have appointed you to bear fruit. You see, all those who come to Jesus, they will bear fruit because God himself is like the Jew working in them through his Holy Spirit. And what does he say? Because I will be as a Jew unto Israel, he shall grow as the lily. The lily is often used in the Bible to talk of beauty and purity. It was used, if I remember, of Solomon's wife in the Song of Songs. The one that he loves, he calls her the lily of the valley. She's so beautiful, so, so pure. Well, that's what God promises to do. doesn't just promise to heal you. He promises to love you. But he also promises to make you beautiful. He promises to make you so lovely. You see, sin makes you ugly. But God's Holy Spirit will make you beautiful. He shall grow as a lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. Lebanon is the place where you used to have very, very tall trees. And they reckon that the roots of those trees went so far down into the ground that they would be able to withstand all the storms. You see what God promises when he says that you will cast forth your roots as Lebanon. He promises to make you stable. He promises to make you strong and stable. Your roots will be firmly sunk down and you will be kept stable. But when you let sin work in your life, sin makes you weak. Sin makes you very, very weak. When you find someone who is backsliding, you find not only an ugly person, but you find a weak person. One who is not able to resist sin very well. One who finds sin attractive because he's weak. But if you turn unto God, he will make you beautiful and he will make you strong and stable. He also promises to make you grow. His branches shall spread. He promises to make you grow. Not that you will stay at the same level all the time, but that you will experience 
what every Christian would like to experience, this growth in grace, this growth in holiness, this growth in knowledge, this growth of awareness. And the great thing about glory itself will be when we will be in that new heaven and earth, we will experience very much what it will mean to grow and grow and grow, to be progressing, to know that there is always a freshness, that there is always a new field to pioneer, to know that there is always a new opening before us. There is growth, growth, growth. Don't you feel sad sometimes? I go round and I speak to a lot of the older people. They look forward to nothing in many ways but death itself. They saw themselves growing up as a child, up to their prime, and then they begin to sink. But that's not the way it will be for the Christian. It's growing, growing, growing. Life, life, life. Never-ending, full, free, fresh life. Where a sin makes you fall. God also promises permanence. He promises beauty, stability, growth. He promises permanence. His beauty shall be as the olive tree. You see, the olive tree is an evergreen tree. It doesn't lose its leaf or its greenness in the winter time. It remains green. And that's what God promises. He promises that what he will make of you will be lasting. It will be permanent. You know this beauty in that itself. You know this. It's a privilege to preach the gospel. Because it offers something to people that they can never lose. Something that will be there forever. You'll be like the olive tree permanently beautiful. Also God promises to make you pleasant and his smell as Lebanon. Apparently there was a beautiful smell as they walked through the forest of Lebanon. It seemed that the trees themselves with their stability were able to produce such foliage itself. And there was a beautiful smell from the wood and from the raisin and everything. It was so attractive to the people who lived in that area. It was often spoken of the smell of Lebanon. It was pleasant to be there. And God promises to make you pleasant to people. You will not be an order to people. You will be pleasant to them. And that moves on to the next thing in verse 7. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. As if God is saying, I am going to make you attractive. I'm not just going to make you beautiful in yourself, stable, I'm not just going to make you always to grow and to be permanent. I'm not just going to make you pleasant. I'm going to make you attractive so that people will long to come under 
your shade. People will long to come into your home. People will long to want to speak to you. You feel like a backslidden Christian, don't you? You feel like you're no use to anyone. You're such a hypocrite. But God can change you. Return to him. And he will make you attractive. So that you will see people coming into your home. Into your fellowship. Under your wings. They that dwell under the shadow shall return. You'll be attractive, you see. You'll be of use to others. You'll be salt in the earth. Light to the world. And also, he will make you, he will make of you such a great work that your memory will be lasting even after you've passed from this world. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine and the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. The wine of Lebanon apparently had a beautiful taste that lingered in your mouth long after you tasted it. And that's what God promises to do for you. He promises to make you one whose fragrance will remain even after you have passed from this world, just like the wine of Lebanon. They shall revive as the corn, grow as the wine. You know, corn, sometimes when it's lacking in moisture, it tends to sag or to wither. You see it with plants as well, but you feed that plant that nourish it, give it the dew, and it begins to stand up straight. It has stature. It has dignity. And God promises to give you dignity. Isn't that beautiful now? You begin as an unbeliever. And God says, I will heal you. I will love you. I will make you beautiful. I will make you stable. I will make you to grow always. I will make you permanent. I will make you pleasant and attractive. So that people will know you've lived even after you've gone. Surely there is nothing to compare with that. Why? Turn ye, turn ye. Why will you die when all this is offered to you? Come to him, trust in him, and there's a beautiful life that comes with it. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, we pray to Thee that Thou wouldst be at work in our lives as a Jew unto Israel. For without Thee, Lord, without abiding in the vine, there can be no fruit.
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, we pray that thy word would find a lodging place in our hearts this night. And that those that are seeking would find thee. That those that are asking might find thee to be the one to answer. That thou would open the door unto them. Lord, we would pray thee not to allow the evil one to take away the word that is sown in our hearts. For thy glory's sake we ask it. Amen. Shall we close now by singing the last three verses of Psalm 91? Psalm 91, the last three verses. Psalm 91 from verse 14 to the end. Because on me he set his love, I'll save and...